Welcome to um, another uh, edition of the Guy Foundation podcast. Um, I'm your host, Adam Goodman, uh, and I'm here with, uh, you know, Guide co-founder and mental health professional, um, Moses Farrow. Hello. And I am also here with special guest um, who is also, uh, you know, a CAD. She's, um, you know, a longstanding member of the both the adoptee community and the mental health community. As a professional, um, Jayhee, how are you? Hey, good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for uh, being on our podcast. And um, so we've we've had a bunch of conversations leading up to this, so we're really excited to jump in. Um, but um, if Jayhee, if you could just introduce yourself a little bit, so to, so our audience can get to know you, that'd sure. be awesome. Sure. So my name is Jayhee Chung Sherman. Formerly known as Melanie Chung Sherman, um, I always share out Jehi is really a reclamation of my Asianness and um, my narrative in terms of adoption and um, all that comes with that. Um, but I go by Jehi now professionally, and I've been working in the field of mental health and um, particularly in adoptions, specifically in transracial adoption and adoption identity formation. Um, within um, our community for almost 20 years now. I have worked in different areas related to child placement, child welfare, um, but my my heart rests within our community and in the mental health provisions um, about what will serve and support our community and truly affirm our community. Um, so I've been a licensed clinical social worker like so many other fellow CADs and mm. uh, moved into the realm of psychotherapy because it's been lacking um, really the intersections of our experiences um, collectively have just not had any places at any one specific table. And we have been talking about just, you know, completely deconstructing that table and yeah, building our own, build our own. Cause like our community yeah. knows what's best. And so really just, um, moving into that space of really reclaiming what mental health even looks like and decolonizing that in terms of adoption, in terms of race, in terms of oppression systems that have really declared how we should be versus in what ways we navigate our world and how we have literally adapted, survived, and really thrived as a community. Um, so that's really what I like to focus on in my practice. That's awesome. That's really amazing. Um, so there, so we, we, you know, while, while we were preparing and just as we we're talking and, and, um, you know, and as you mentioned, uh, this idea of building our own table. And I love that because it sort of, it, it flips the idea of like, we just want to seat at the table because mm -hmm. we've had a lot of adoptees, and, and and this is where we have had success, right? We've had adoptees sort of in the agencies working. We've had people, you know, um, at these tables. And we're just seeing that things are not changing, right? Like, or, or changing in the ways that we'd want to see them change. And and I think it also just, it, it relates to the whole sort of atmosphere that's going on right now in the, in the wider world, where it's like, we can't just ask, you know, the, it isn't, that we want a table at the, ex we want it, we don't want to seat at the existing table, right? We want to just, we want to create a new system. You know, we want to create a whole new society 
um, that is more in line with the values that we want to go forward with because we're just seeing things that are just not working and we can't, and we've tried to tweak knobs here, you know, and like change things, mm-hmm. but it, the change isn't happening that we want. Uh, and so I love that idea of like building our own table and I, and I'm hoping that like got the guy foundation <laughs> is one of those steps in that direction, right. To sort of building our own table. But oh. from a, from a mental health professional standpoint, when you say something like, you know, building our own table, what does that mean to you? Like what, what, what do you, what would you classify as like building our own table? I, well, first I just want to say in full disclosure, you know, I sat at, I, I had the privilege and the abilities um, to sit at multiple tables throughout my career. And, you know, the system itself will change perspective and will change the person in the system. And what I've learned yeah. from that is that, you know, in terms of the structural piece of um, systems that are really there that are kind of baked into oppressive systems of basically sharing out what um, marginalized communities, what is adaptive and what is beneficial for us rather than with us. The table means it is housed by us and it is for us. It is mm-hmm. collective. It is, um, and it is also inviting and inclusive, but it is not afraid to speak truth to power. And it is not afraid right. of deconstructing a lot of the elements that have been there that have really led to pathologies. So if we look in terms of mental health, if we look in terms of, um, even the practice itself, a child placement, and what has actually gone into the um, disproportionality, particularly mm-hmm. of children of color, black, black, brown, indigenous, Asian, multiracial kids, um, moving into systems of what is quote unquote best interest, and really then redefining that. Well, you know, my, this community knows what is best interest. It may be really dynamic in how we get to that place, but I think without having even our own beginning to formulate our own lexicon and our vocabulary of what that is, is also this reclamation of our space that I don't necessarily, because if I were to sit at the table, there really is housed in a lot of, let's just say it, white supremacy, patriarchal um, standards. And that is not going to necessarily serve and benefit the needs of our community when, if I'm really like in my lane, really looking in terms of mental health or in my lane in terms of social justice and equity work and activism, I think those two things are housed together because social justice also paves the way for mental wellness. And in terms of our community, um, for so long, we've had too many authors dictating what we should be versus inviting us and then actually handing the mic over and divesting power to share out this is the experiences of adopted people and that we are not monolithic and that we don't necessarily all have to house in a space of agreement but at least we need to be able to not have to go through a table to make our table. I don't want permission anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. To do the work. Absolutely. I agree. Yeah, I can I couldn't agree with more uh, more with that. Um because like there uh 
that what you said about how, you know, these systems are sort of just a wash in, in white supremacy and you're never going to be able to get justice through this system. And it can be hard when you're talking about a system like the justice system, right? Where like you're talking about courts. And there was a story that just came out about, and it wasn't really adoption related, but I think it illustrates what you're talking about, about systems that you're not going to be able to get justice. They just came out and it made national news about this 15-year-old black girl who was sent to juvenile detention because she missed or she wasn't um, submitting her homework on time uh, and it violated her parole because I guess she had gotten in trouble earlier. Um, because she was being violent toward her mother or something like that, or was being delinquent. Or, yeah, I don't know. Like, she was doing things that maybe that were dumb, but like, and I guess deemed criminal enough to, you know, put her in juvenile hall. But then the judge basically was like, well, you know, we we told you, you were, we were going to be strict with you and you didn't do your homework. So, we're going to take you, you know, put you back into juvenile detention. And that doesn't, uh, you know, that a kind of system where, you know, that happens isn't one where like you can just expect to like, you know, have a few more black judges and that will suddenly prevent this from happening. Like just the idea that you can say to like a 15 year old, you know, child and say, you don't do your homework, you're going to go to basically, you know, kids jail, right? But it's a jail, right? It's a jail for kids. Um, it doesn't seem right. Like, how does that happen? Um, and so, yeah, it, but, but, it, but it can be hard. You're like, well, you mean no judges? No, I don't think that's what we mean. <laughs> but, you know. It, it really isn't a deconstruction of the structural powers and the privilege within the system. Because I also consider for this, this young woman, what were the issues that were going on systemically that were creating spaces that, made it barriers to accomplish the goals right. that were actually set and were these goals and set in this um, prism of basically prism of um, classism and um, essentially whiteism. Like can, can I even access schooling? Can I even do these things? But then I think like, if we are really going to empower our communities, including our own as adoptee communities, and we have to really look at what is both what's disenfranchised us and then what allowing us to be able to come to a place that will, like our community knows also what will empower us as much mm -hmm. as this young woman who you're talking about within communities, because so often the structures of the system communities, we've been doing a lot of groundwater work in our adoptee communities for a long time. Like, I just want to give like credit to my mentors and the people who have really been on these front lines and doing a lot of the labor to path, like forge where we can even be in the space and just holding this podcast to come to, you know, that's, that's amazing that we're doing this. Um, but I think about, you know, then the structures will come into play and say, no, you're not doing it right. It needs to be evidence-based under these guidelines for mental health, or it needs to be these applications in order to say that this is what healing and recovery looks like, that this young woman needs to follow through with X, Y, and Z based on what data, based on what cooperation within her own community. And I think about that 
in terms of the provision even of mental health when it comes to working within our community. Because a number of times I've heard from clients who come through, they may have seen two to three therapists. They may have put the shingle out and said, I am really adept in terms of adoption. They've taken a few attachment classes. It is almost like attachment synonymous with now I'm adoption expert, coupled with typically white adoptive parents, typically white, cis, straight adoptive uh, women, mothers, who then move into the field that is predominantly femme and, um, you know, women-based. And so there's already kind of these structural layers, right? And then working with adopted people and adopted people of color and how all of these intersections and I think sometimes a lack of awareness in terms of not only what happens in terms like transference of what's happening in the room at a small level, but the broader scale of like, okay, this is what attachment is going to look like. But what I find in terms of attachment when we start deconstructing with many clients, predominantly adoptees, is is really adaptation of survival, adaptation of behavior. That actually is genius. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think survival is um, one of those words that uh, can can explain a lot when it comes to to adoption adoptees and adoption that i think some people might not understand it, it especially if it's like the adoptee wasn't um like like a like a quote unquote orphan or uh, like found on the street or something i think for people like that or or in situations like that um people can understand like oh yeah they're surviving or something but if it were let, let's say it was like an infant adoption or or something and 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 a person's like, well, you know, they were a baby. They weren't, you know, well, you know, they weren't really surviving, right? I mean, they were given to a family and they could survive, right? They were given food and shelter. Like, what survival are you talking about? So I think it can be sometimes very hard for non-adoptees or non, you know, people people who are sort of outside that the, the environment and only know of adoptions, you know, intellectually to quite understand what we, you know. The, the importance of that survival um, instinct or that survival um, mode of operation that adoptees sort of, you know, uh, operate in. Um, so, yeah. So, like, I, I guess, um, you know, when in your, in your uh, experience uh, at, at, you know, for many years of, of, of treating and helping patients, what has been um, a good, way for them to find someone who will fit as like as as a therapist if it's not you i mean you could be the answer for that but um for for them but like what's what's like a if 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 an adoptee was listening you know is listening to this podcast and thinking you know i want to go out and find a therapist what would your advice be for like some best practices of going about that search um, and it can feel really daunting. I think it can be. Oh, yeah. It's so challenging when predominantly in terms of psychotherapy, I think in most of most of our professions, um, it, it is a pretty white dominated space when we're talking, especially for transracial adoptees, CADs. Definitely. Um, so it really is going to be a match in terms of, you know, what are what are you seeking? 
is it is it that I am then working? Am I coming to with challenges related to depression or anxiety? I may not have the words for. Um, am I seeking support and services that is going to be more directive? Then I may be seeking out a specific um, therapist that is looking at this is their their niche, a specialty. But quite typically, underneath that foundationally is also the narrative and the impacts of um, relinquishment and the impacts of our relational um, being with um, with other people. And other people, well, therapists could call that attachment. Um, an attachment, I just have to share specifically, is really when we are activated or stressed out, who are the people that we seek for comfort and for security? Um, but in a relational sense, you know, do, do I really, do I feel comfortable? Do I feel a sense of feeling known, feeling understood? Do I see that I could be vulnerable enough with this person to really begin to dissect what may be underneath some of the symptomology or the things that are coming through? I can't sleep. I'm not able to um, navigate these different relationships that I have anxiety all the time. The other portion of that, particularly for CADs and transracial adoptees, because many times in our own developmental stage, you know, we'll call it coming out of the fog, but there may not be words for the experience. These were, you know, the vernacular comes with development. It also comes with relationship. And most many have not had that opportunity to really invest and feel safe in relationship to really go deeper into our own narratives when it comes to understanding how adoption has interlaid birth family birth culture and then racial identity and development so i find therapeutically that many times we are deconstructing things um and it's in a scaffolding way like maybe we're talking about um, depression, anxiety in relation to relationships and overlaying how that feels as a person of color. But there are adoptees. I don't see myself as that. So we're starting where that individual is. If I'm working with a therapist who's already interjecting what they think should happen or what they think should be a modicum of where you should be developmentally, that's kind of a red flag. And, and many times for adoptees, we kind of turn off our fight, flight, or freeze. We turn off that gut because adoption for many could not exist outside of a denial. And for so long, that internalized denial is also, um, it's conceptualized into or becomes a form of survival. And sometimes just even scratching the surface about what adoption means had not been actually in the forefront consciously of someone's mind when they're coming to sessions. So if the therapist immediately is like, let's just talk about adoption without having a really good intake and formal assessment and really de just devoting time to get to know who you are as a human being, then that, that's going to take time. But underneath that is also the ability to um, to maintain some tension and trust. Because I think for most adopted people, trust is a continual knowing. Like for myself, at least, I know this within myself, that there will always be portions that will always second guess trust. There will always be that one part of me that's waiting for the shooter drop that is so familiar. And no more am I wanting to run from it. 
but through my own work and through um, deconstructing what this looks like when it happens in session, when I'm sensing it in the counseling room. For some, it's going to be manageable. For others, just kind of knowing this going in, that in a therapeutic relationship, the reparation and the repair is actually having somebody that you may not have ever had before hold information in a way that is compassionate, that is understanding and caring. Because many times they're waiting for that shoe to drop because maybe their parents or caregivers, it's just that look that cuts it off. We're not talking about rice today. Your adoption was great. You should be really, you know, the grateful. So many of the same things that we hear over and over. Um, And sometimes the shame of what may bring an adoptive person to the doors, especially into adulthood. Uh, I wasn't always nice to my parents and I don't know why. Well, let's deconstruct what that is. What does that mean to you? Because really what that was is a survival and not feeling known. And it doesn't mean that you were bad. It means that they're acting upon you. Yeah, and 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 it can be hard. Like you just mentioned, like you 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 will start to feel guilty because you'll say like I didn't treat them that well, mm-hmm. and you feel bad about that, and then you don't want to necessarily <laughs> deconstruct why that was, right? And it can and it, it's very tough. You know, it's very therapy. Therapy in in general is tough, and it's a and I think it's a brave decision for anyone to really even start to look. And then even go to a one session to with the therapist and uh, to see how it goes. And so I feel like, you know, you can do your best to pick a therapist um, that you have access to and that you feel might have, um, you know, the best chance of being a good fit. Um, but really, as you said, it comes down to sort of being, paying attention as you're sort of talking to this person and saying, are they trying to push like their own sort of like training on you? Do they have a viewpoint about something? And then if you don't sort of fit that viewpoint, are they trying to like steer you towards that? Um, or are they really just sitting back and listening and absorbing at least early on in the relationship mm-hmm. what you're telling them? Because there are certainly therapists that, as I think, that um, will do more pushing of idea of their own ideas, and there are others that will s- just listen. And then, you know, they they obviously will push back. You know, they're going to challenge you on things if they feel that it's something you need to be challenged on. But I think, in my experiences of, of having a therapist, at least in the beginning, they just do a lot of listening. You know, they're they're getting to know you. You know, and, and, and if they, and, and I think that, you know, as someone, if you don't have a lot of experience with therapy and you're sort of just doing it for the first time, make sure that they're listening to you mm-hmm. and really asking a lot of questions about you and your life and what, how you're feeling and thinking. Um, I, I, I really believe that like in the beginning, they shouldn't be telling you things, you know, uh, uh, at least in the beginning. Uh, but but that's sort of how I see it because um, we you know you, you just you don't want to be you want to be able to f- feel a trust level and a lot of the trust is built through listening I feel uh, at least for a therapist. I don't know if you had other things to mention Moses just in terms of you know accessing what that's like when you're interfacing as an adoptive person as well and. 
when people are accessing services. And I think it's really important that the therapist is also adopted. I think it's important that they have done some internal work for themselves and that they've yeah. addressed their own personal biases. I think it's important that um, you find someone who is just that much further along in their own coming out of the fog. Uh, so it's not this uh, this thing of, well, uh, I know that I need to be further along and the therapist I'm mm -hmm, seeing mm -hmm. is has not quite gotten there yet. Um, so looking at those aspects as well, uh, I think it's important uh, that um, you're able to have that human-to-human uh, -human connection as well, like you were saying, uh, uh, Jayhi. Uh, one of the first uh, pieces of advice early in my career uh, from a co-therapist was, you got to be real with them. And at that stage in my career, I was like, what does that even mean to be real? <laughs> huh. It's taken me a long time to get to a point of, of saying, ah, now I'm understanding where it, it's just you're meeting each other face to face. You're able to be uh, in the same vulnerable space. Uh, so the other thing uh, that, that you brought up, Adam, it takes a lot of courage. Uh, and, and, and Jayhi, both of you said it takes, it does take a lot of courage to meet with someone to kind of have this inherent trust that what you share is going to be honored, is going to be listened to and, and to some degree validated. Uh, so I would say, yes, uh, I agree with you guys on that. Where I'm kind of wanting to shift the focus from traditional mental health uh, mm -hmm. dy dynamics and uh, the therapeutic relationship, move it more towards uh, self-empowerment. So the client can really, the client, the person uh, seeking the therapy can really feel empowered to take charge of their own well-being and, you know, move that space more into just educating, informing, uh, bouncing off ideas, uh, and just really being in a peer-to-peer -peer kind of situation you're you're uh, helping them figure things out, uh, mm -hmm. and not so much, um, you know, being so prescriptive. Uh, now, I want to back up and, and backtrack and, and say that there's a multitude of modalities uh, out there, um, and I think this is really important. And I think it's wonderful that uh, the mental health community has really. Uh, uh, wanted to reach out to all degrees of the human condition and say, we want to address people exactly where they're at, whatever stage in mm -hmm. life, whatever, uh, symptomology, you know, just whatever, uh, they're coming to therapy for, uh, that we want to meet their need. I think so. I think, uh, it's not to say, uh, let's discount, uh, traditional therapies or these modalities that are more prescriptive and directive, mm -hmm. but really to say that, yeah, we're, we're recognizing uh, 
one size does not fit all and that there there, yeah. is, there is such a a wide range of uh how people uh you know struggle in life or or just carry you know carry themselves through life um yeah but uh to to round out the point uh that self awareness as a therapist i think is really important and for you know for uh the process of seeking a therapist uh to have just a little bit of that sense for yourself of here's what i'm looking for here's what i need at this point in my life or uh here's i what i think will be helpful um but um yeah uh i think just given the current circumstances uh we all need to be working on addressing what what's going on in our own hearts and and minds and address you know whatever sense of privilege whatever sense of personal bias uh that we've grown up with that we've carried that we just have remained complicit to powerful i'm just sharing out my agreement and also just sitting in um you know a space also of um alignment related to the self awareness that we as clinicians have, um, and I think sometimes it can be it can be this really interesting and sometimes challenging space. I don't know if you've experienced this as well. So I, d- I don't want to make any generalizations or assumptions, but there are times when I am visiting um, in session or being present in session um, with other fellow adopted people, and so this back and forth. And I call it like this a, a synergy. It is what's happening in the counseling room. Um, and really being able then there is also a space of between the work that's already been done and representing as an adopted person, the work in hopes of where somebody may be and holding that as well as the work and what they're internalizing my being in that space, if that makes sense. And vice versa, then the recognition of what's familiar as a therapist who is also identifies as an adoptive person without overlaying so much of my own experiences because it is theirs to hold. And I've made many mistakes and will continue to make mistakes. (laughs) No one's perfect. And I think one of the best, like in my own going to um, and seeking, I think I, I. a great therapist and don't be afraid to ask this out. Do you see your own therapist? And I think that that's a great point. That's a great point <laughs> to do this. And, um, the safest space I felt in terms of therapy has been with my therapist of being able to share that I didn't feel comfortable. That doesn't feel right to me. Or we talked about this and I, I felt, I felt othered in this. That's actually a replication really between this, a real safe relationship. And I think for many, many adopted people, it may be one of the first times with this unconditional regard for where that person is, is, is so critical and it can be so healing. So like holding that narrative can also be a challenge as an adopted person doing this work. And also rewarding because I think in, we also have great privilege and insight to move the process through in a way and also call in gently things that maybe other therapists 
will not be able to outside of that lived experience in a way that I would not be able to speak congruently. I can speak compassionately to, but can speak congruently with say an individual who is also identifies as, um, as trans non-binary, I'm not going to have Mm -hmm. that lived experience, but I can compassionately come alongside. But if you have the privilege to access a therapist who's also adopted, there's not many of us. Is that therapist willing to consult? Mm -hmm. Are they open and flexible enough? Who, who are the people on your call log or on your Basically, your DMs that you consult with related to adoption, related to racial identity, related to transracial pieces, grief and loss, birth search. Those are the things, if you can't, do they have the humility enough to seek that out? Because there are plenty of us who are doing consult. Oh, for sure. For sure. Yeah. Um, Just... uh yeah, it's amazing uh, just to think about um, how much work's already been done, you know, how much there is to do. Um, and, you know, I hope that, uh, you know, the adoptees listening, um, you know, will be encouraged to go out and, and if they feel it's right for them to seek, uh, you know, seek a, an adoptee who's a therapist or just seek therapy for themselves. Um I think I, I wanted to, I just want, I wanted to circle back to, um, a, you know, a topic that we had talked about before. We did mention earlier in the podcast, uh, about attachment. Cause I think attachment is one of those huge topics, you know, <laughs> when it comes to adoptees and adoption. Um, and, uh, we had been, t- we had talked before about sort of like, you know, the, how attachment is described like sort of the clinical models around it. Uh, and then the fact that that clinical model that, you know, hopefully you can, you and Moses can describe, Jehi, um, is taught to prospective adoptive parents. And in that teaching that and then the expectations that are set from this sort of framework, how that can manifest, you know, in, in harm, probably unintentionally to, to adoptees. Uh, I know that's a lot. It was a rambling question, but. Yeah, uh, Adam, we got you. Uh, I think <laughs> uh, I, I, I agree with you that this is a, a longstanding, um, uh, somewhat controversial uh, debate within the mental health community. Uh, the development uh, of the diagnosis of reactive attachment disorder. and. Uh, thankfully, in my opinion, there are those who are moving this uh, uh, dialogue, this debate forward to introduce uh, newer concepts of complex PTSD, of developmental, uh, childhood developmental uh, PTSD. Uh, and I think it, the, the movement, um, uh, and, and I'm just speaking about this with, uh, another colleague uh, probably a couple of weeks ago, moving it more in the realm of uh, resiliency mm-hmm. uh, and, and just kind of reintroducing um, the idea of how we 
heal from trauma, how we overcome it, how we live with it, uh, uh, and building up the, that kind of mindset, that kind of mentality, that kind of approach of seeing us not as trauma survivors or trauma victims, uh, which is an older term, but really uh, that we are um, uh, inherently resilient. We are, we as an organism, as human beings, we're wired to organize experiences and how these experiences are overlaid and what we have um, lived through and what we have, what's been out there in our environment, what's, you know, within our own DNA and our makeup, which sometimes can be um, even more um extended out because of a lack of information um will shape our environment but we are organisms to make sense of things and organize our experiences so my argument related to attachment particularly when i'm working with parents who are bringing younger adopted uh, mm -hmm. adoptees to the office for um behavioral um you know uh, adaptation and um uh, containment, whatever that looks like, uh, is also in what ways have they navigated that is both curious to me, curious to them as parents, curious to that kiddo, um, but then also the genius that it takes in terms of adaptation. It may not be um, the most beneficial in terms of the whole family system, but I think about attachment is so... It's almost like attachment has become intertwined with adoption and how it's taught out. So what has been deemed as quote unquote healthy and secure attachment is really actually moved away from academics and research. So in full disclosure, I shared with you all a little earlier, I did train under Dr. Main and Dr. Hesse through their UCLA at Berkeley's Attachment Institute. So really got baked in terms of um, or really learn the methodology behind the adult attachment interview, which was really coming out in language and linguistics. Well, our kids don't, our kids speak in behavior. We, um, and so, you know, security means I can actually use my words. I can navigate the world through my um, sharing out and knowing that somebody else is going to receive that wholeheartedly. Um, and when it comes to attachment theory, the way first it is then taught to clinicians and then the way that it's enacted in, um, with family systems and perspective adopt families, we have an idea of what is pathological, like what is wrong. These are the signs of unhealthy attachment in your child, mm -hmm. irregardless of the experiences that they have. And so if I'm only looking at the behavior or this idea of good or bad in a real binary, well, how am I going to treat this relationship, not just the child, but this relationship? And then how is that child internalizing their, their role in that relationship? And adoptees, if we really then look at adoption, it had to be formed by denial. Everybody had to deny some reality to get to the point of placement and relinquishment. But the adopted person, we literally embody everybody else's denial. So mm -hmm. to actually, if we were really going to bake, to like break down attachment, it is also breaking down the denial. 
And when it is, when the words are used in denial in terms of, well, this is a healthy attached adoptee, which looks adjusted and they're quiet and they're grateful and they're well-behaved, but we're missing all the other underneath things. When we have a child who's externalizing their pain, they're externalizing their anguish, they're actually externalizing the denial they have words for. That's right. That's right. They're acting it out because they can't speak it in words. So if we're really then to like deconstruct attachment, attachment is what I do to get to share and communicate my stress, anxiety, my worry, my fear with you. There is not, I'm not reactive to it. It's not like a sneeze. I'm going to, I'm going to have a response to it. Um, Your child and we as human beings are constantly enacting attachment. I'm sharing in some way. It may not be the way you want me to share it, but it's still happening. And if we then place these labels on adopted people as in, you know, the number of clients who are much older, who come through my office through the years and said, I am Brad. Now I know what that means, but the sadness, I'm like, what does that feel like for you? Do you know, let's talk about what that means. Most of the time, no one has ever sat down and told them what rad is. They were called it. And rad is the, what is it? It's reactive attachment disorder? Mm-hmm. Okay. No, there's even words for adoptees called radish. There are parents <laughs> who will wear trauma mama shirts. God. Come look at my radish. These are actually sold. You can that's, find these. That's, that's, um, that's perverse. I mean, that is... um. That's like, it's harmful. It's I don't violent. even know how to express what I feel that's like, but perverse is like the word that comes to mind. I mean, that is, it's, um, yeah, I'm, I, okay, I'm not shocked by it. It's not like I'm surprised mm-hmm. it happens. Uh, I just, it, it, it's, it's, I don't know how to describe it. It's like, it's, it's so perverse. It's just, how does, how, how, how does someone come to do that and like almost, mm-hmm. Whereas like a badge of pride, mm-hmm. like they're not shamed by it. Like they don't have to feel shame. They have a t-shirt. They wear that. You don't feel shame by something if you wear a t-shirt. You know what I mean? Like. Uh, right. And so the curiosity is always, you know, what was, what's the motivation behind that? Not only the sharing out of deeply private information for their children, yeah. but particularly if you have children of color in a predominantly, um, white space. So we're also the laying on there's a there is a racialized piece and oppressive mm-hmm. piece. And also then I'm hearing from kids like vernaculars, like kids from hard places. This has been through TBRI, um, in different circles in adoption. And I'll hear from adoptees who say, I'm I'm a kid from a hard place. And what do you think they're they've internalized about who they are as a human mm-hmm. being? I'm hard. Yeah. My birth family's right. hard. My race is hard. My identities are hard. And so if if attachment means that I come to you in stress and anxiety and the place that is creating the stress and anxiety are the very people who are supposed to protect me and see me, that paradox for a child is overwhelming. So no wonder they're responding like this. That's actually healthy. In terms of yes. response, yes. like you're scaring yes. the crap out of me and I don't yes. have the words for it because you're not protecting me. 
they teased me because of yeah. the way I looked. Oh, it's not about your look. We're not going to talk about race. So they learn to shut this off, cordon this off. And so it may come out in this pathology that they're dismissive in their attachment or they are, um, you know, that there are other underlying factors that create insecure attachment. When really I get down to, in terms of assessment between parent and child, it's a relational mm-hmm. interaction. That's right. They don't feel safe talking about it. Right. And Yeah. And, and, and I think a lot of the time, uh, you know, people have thoughts about what parenting is, right? Like, what do you do? Like, you know, maybe and it comes from like your own upbringing and media and, and, and sort of how we're socialized. Um, so I, I think it's, it, it could be hard for maybe an adoptive parent who's hearing like, you know, maybe the way that you're acting or what you're doing or what you thought you'd be able to do to form attachments. Um, if you, th- if they thought they had to ha- do anything at all, cause I think a lot of times, People think, you know, you have a child and it's a sort of attachment um, that they're being told, well, maybe you need to rethink this. Maybe you, what you've been doing isn't working. So, you need to try something different. And, you know, and, and maybe that that's, you know, that can be hard to hear. So, you know, the, they just don't change or, or the environment doesn't change. So, then, the you know, as you said, it can be a rational expect, a rational response. If you're saying, I'm not feeling loved or secure or heard, and you continue to act in ways that make me feel insecure, so now I'm going to pull away because over a certain amount of time, it's like, well, you know, what am I going to do? So, that's a rational response to that. And then maybe there's a disconnect there. Which has created, I think, that pathology of the adopted child syndrome, which was coined yeah. in the 70s, radish, red. And so, like I'm holding, and it kind of goes back to what we were talking about before in terms of mental health, of knowing thyself and self-awareness. So, so often I'm working with parents in their own their own trauma and attachment histories right, about right. What, what brought you here and what is elicited in this relationship. Because attachment... It is biological. It's survival because without this, we will will die. We have to sure, be connected yeah. as human beings. We're wired for that. But if we're only looking at it through a behavioral lens, then what we're going to wind up doing is not only um, pushing people away and pathologizing them, DSMing, fiving them. It must <laughs> be if you have you know explosive. Um, explosive disorder versus I think he's really scared on top of other biochemical and possible other, you know, prenatal factors that have gone into that for adopted people. But I'm also then looking at, so where does this lie for your own history as a parent and particularly as an adopted person, as therapist, I've got to be really mindful of my own transference Mm -hmm. and the counter transference Mm -hmm. that's happening because so often I'll hear from family, I just want my kid to be like you. Now that's a mouthful, <laughs> right? That is, <laughs> what yeah. My kid, you know, so even even kind of what they may be coming in for. And so that says a lot about what the desire is. Because ultimately, especially for families coming for help, I truly believe they want the best for their kids as a parent. Absolutely, yeah. They don't want them to hurt. Um, and so I don't want to berate or denigrate the work that has been done by parents, but I think in the structure of what's being taught, we have to literally take it 
and break it down um, because it is doing it's doing damage to adoptive people by pathologizing, by not seeing the holistic part of not just themselves, but the relationship outside of um, one perspective of what, you know, a lot of the research and clinical application it has been formulated, particularly in the 80s and 90s um, by white adult parents who mm-hmm. could publish, who could get the information out. And so the internet has really changed that perspective. Um, and as more people enter into the field as clinicians. So a couple of things that I want to just jump in, uh, as you say, we need to deconstruct, uh, you know, the existing pathology and approaches, behavior approaches. Uh, uh, the two things that came to the forefront for me is the intergenerational trauma or the intergenerational transmission of, of trauma we're, we're adopted into families. Uh, there's no biological connection. And it's fascinating how we end up playing out uh, particular family dynamics or relationship yeah. uh, issues, unresolved trauma from uh, previous generations, not just from our adopt parents, but uh, from previous uh, generations uh, before them. And I do feel we are at a, uh, at a time when we're, I think, just able to start addressing this and bring this to our table and say, adopt parents, we need you to work on your own issues, resolve your own previous familial traumas. Uh, so you don't bring that into a brand new relationship that with all the hope and love and mm-hmm. intent, for making this uh, uh, a beautiful thing. Uh, the other thing that uh, in terms of deconstructing this is just understanding that the uh, parent education, when adopt, uh, adoptive parents are in the process of adopting, that there is no standardized uh, education course. There's no set number of hours mm-hmm. to learn about the basics of parenting. Uh, it, I, I believe it is just state to state, uh, and even agency to agency. Uh, so there, there are uh, situations, uh, that I've come across where one parent is totally th- throwing themselves into this. They are doing their own work. They're reading the books. They are mm-hmm. taking mm-hmm. these courses and the other parent is not saying, I'm so glad they are. Because they'll be the parent, and I'll all get to have all the fun. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah, and that uh, happens a lot, I think, in in parent, you know, in, in families. <laughs> it it sure does. Not outside of anything, but I think that happens a lot. <laughs> it, it it sure does. Uh, but what I mean, what that does, it 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 uh, confuses and complicates that yeah. attachment process, right? That we're that we're talking about. Uh, it, uh, it is actually more harmful and more uh, disruptive uh, when one parent really knows what they're doing and the other parent, you know, is just going off of what they were brought up on, for example. Uh, That's right. Yeah. So looking at those two pieces, 
I, uh, I, I think are, are really important to bring to this new table that we're, that we're creating. Uh, because in a way, uh, just bringing it back to having this safe space for ourselves, that we do need to take a look at uh, these elements um, that infiltrate our uh, internal internalized experience of being an adoptee. Mm-hmm. So there is the sense of, well, if we're creating this new table for ourselves, we need to have this uh, sense of a safe space uh, where it's not being infiltrated anymore where we're able to recognize, oh, we don't have to carry our family's burdens, that mm-hmm. they're just ignorantly or unassumingly uh, uh, putting on us because of the way that they were socialized, the social narratives, the constructs, everything that, mm-hmm. that, that we've been talking about um, that do need to be deconstructed and reconstructed. As I, I think about, as you're sharing that out, I'm glad that you brought up the intergenerational trauma that really brings family systems together, specifically in adoption and particularly in transracial international adoption, you know, the exploration of the motivation um, that can really encapsulate colonialism, right. And like saviorism and, you know, what, what, what is actually being sought if you break down the portions of denial and complicity, complicity in that, because I'm thinking like if we uphold all this and continue, even as adopted people, when we get those seats at the table, basically we're just going to replicate the system, and we're going to replicate mm-hmm. that, and even in a lot of ways, then encourage it down to the cell, you know, the cellular level in terms of the family systems that we're seeing in counseling and the clients. Um, and this is this is a slow process. Um, mm-hmm. It really is. There's so mm-hmm. much for us to like unhook from what we grew up with, and then what we didn't know we didn't know um, in our own histories as adopted people. You know, from addiction, compulsions, um, mental health depression, anxiety, is this because of adoption? I constantly hear that. Or is it is something right. in my birth family? Um, right. Is it just me? <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I, I would, uh, you know, I, hopefully, you know, we'll have another conversation, um, you know, really soon. There's so much more to do. I think a really interesting conversation to have, and I think this is something that um, is – uh, you know, some of my friends and I have talked about or mentioned is like, you know, with so much going on right now and, and with it being very clear that the systems that we've relied on to work um, are just not working uh, in a broad sense, right? You know, with coronavirus and, 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 and ju- you know, social justice, and, you know, the racial sort of um, struggles that are going on, uh, the gender, just identity, uh, and, and the fact that our society is just not running well, right? And, and that all actually does tie back to adoption, right? And, and child welfare, you know, because we have to question why is, why is that child welfare system so large? Like, why are there so many people that need or seem to need to be in the system at any one time, right? I mean, I've done research that like there are 400 to 500,000 people 
children in America at any one time in the child welfare system as a whole, right? And this isn't a system where like, you know, people are going in and out at all times, like, like constantly. So, this isn't like the same people, uh, you know, obviously, you know, but so like, why is that the case? Like, why is, because that seems fairly high, you know? I mean, maybe as a percentage, people are thinking, oh, that's not a lot, but 400,000 people is a lot. That's a lot of people. Um, so, like, why, why is the society like this? And, and, and from a mental health perspective, it's like, well, Yes, it's very important that we, we have good therapists, that we are willing to go to therapy, that we think about mental health. But like, when is mental health not enough? I guess like, when is it sort of like just a stopgap? And it's like, when are we going to actually talk about like fixing the systems that create the need for this? So uh, <laughs> maybe that'll be a, something that we can talk about again and, and start thinking about. But like, you know, I keep. Social justice and racial justice is mental health. It is mental health. It is. Oh, it sorry, Moses, you were. Oh, 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 no, no. Thank you for taking it, taking it in that direction. Uh, it'd be great uh, to elaborate, uh, Jay. He, uh, I just wanted to toss out another st statistic from the UN, uh, Adam, that 80%, 80% of children in orphanages globally mm. are not orphans. That's right. That's mm -hmm. right. They have families. Mm -hmm. they, <laughs> they're not orphans. So, <laughs> it's just 80%. That's incredible. 80%. That isn't like 8%. 80, 80. Mm -hmm. And the vast majority of CADs were in that category. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's sobering to think about that number. Today, it's 2020. Today, yeah, this isn't 1960. That's not 19. It's not after. Um, it's not after a war. Or it's not. Conflict. You know, this is. Yeah, my my concern is as COVID continues, the escalation. You know, people will say the system is broken. I say yes, it is, but it's also breaking family yeah. permanently. It is breaking the most marginalized, um, vulnerable communities and. This is even more, even yes. more than they are already have been sort of targeted to be broken. And it was structured so. to do that. Yeah. The structure. But uh, <laughs> on that very, uh, very upbeat note, um, I'd like to thank, thank you, Jay, for joining us. You know, there's hopefully, uh, you know, I didn't mean to bring up a big topic before we end, but <laughs> hopefully we'll be able to talk about this, uh, you know, as we go on. Uh, and, you know, Moses, thank you as always for being on the podcast and uh, contributing. Uh, and so, yeah, any last thoughts that, you know, uh, you know, that you have, Jayhi? No, I, again, just thank you for the space and just continue. Hopefully this will launch people for thoughtful discussion and dialogue and we don't have to all come to a consensus. Just hopefully some movement to impact these systems and impact our community in a positive way. Absolutely. And Moses? Uh, thank you so much, Adam. Uh, this has been a, a, another uh, really important conversation. I'm so thankful uh, for your work in this space. And, and Jayhi, thank you so much for coming on today uh, and adding your really valuable voice uh, on these issues. Um, 
you are someone that uh, that I've been following uh, very closely, uh, at least on, on Facebook, and really appreciate the just the, the clarity uh, that you are able to articulate uh, your perspective and the the way that you um, are addressing these issues. Uh, so really, thank you very much. Um, the the couple of things I just want to uh, just bring up. Uh, Jay He, along with uh, a couple of other uh, really good therapists, put together this article that is on the Guide Foundation website uh, uh, through I Am Adoptee on how to find the best therapist for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I would encourage people to go to the guidefoundation.org website. Uh, and take a look at that article if you're looking for a therapist. Um, the the other thing that uh, I'd like to, to just leave on um, is we are actively uh, working on solutions to uh, help people uh, work through their problems. We have uh, started up a guide adoptees uh, through uh, to wellness. Uh, it's a Facebook group um, that you can find uh, through the Guide Foundation Facebook page. Uh, you can certainly reach out to Adam or I. Uh, we are uh, looking to connect with other adopt uh, adoptee therapists, uh, just like Jehi, uh, because uh, just we need to get uh, our perspectives together. We need to bring our voices together. So. Uh, I, I would encourage people to reach out uh, to the God Foundation uh, who are working in the mental health uh, and the wellness uh, uh, field. So, oh, Thank you so much, Jehi. Thank you, Moses. Thank you. Um, we will include in um, the show notes uh, both Jehi's article and um, also uh, the new Facebook group link. Um, so again, thank you both. And um, thanks for joining and listening. Right. Bye. Bye. Bye.